Thank you, Pastor Nick, for that reading. And uh, good morning again. Merry Christmas. Christmas is it's an amazing time of year with a lot of sights and sounds and, and smells. And at the center of it all is Jesus Christ. And because he is why we celebrate, everything that we do must point to him. Christmas is about Christ. So do we see who he is and why it is so important to make everything about him? Do we make this day about our king, about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? In Matthew chapter 2, we see that there are a few different responses to the Christ child. And though he is the king of kings, not everyone sees him as that. And even worse, that truth is not always received the way that you would expect God's people to receive it. But there are these magi whom God in his providence and by his grace uses to reveal his plan for Christ's kingdom in this world. In this passage, Matthew 2, it begins telling us that this happened in the days of Herod the king, which should indicate to us that this was a real historical event that took place. Wise men from the east traveled to Jerusalem to find one born king of the Jews. Now kids, we just read about their journey, so now we're going to take a moment to learn just who these wise men are or were. So I'm not going to invite all the adults to come sit up here. You can stay where you're you're seated. But we want to learn a little bit more about the background of these wise men or these magi. Because knowing their background will help us to understand this passage and apply it. And ultimately, as we explore their identity, we will be able to see how God was providentially working to guide these wise men, the magi, toward the newborn king. So let's look at their identity. Uh, Something that we want to ask with these wise men is what is it that they studied? Now, the word that's used here in the Greek for wise men is not actually uh, literally translated wise men, but it's, it's magi, it's magoi in the Greek. It can also be translated as a magician or a scientist or a sorcerer. Magi or, or magoi was actually the name of a tribe of people. The Magi were a priestly tribe from among the Medes and the Persians. So they were similar to the Levites. They were a priestly tribe. And as far as what they studied, they would have been skilled in mathematics, history, agriculture, architecture, science, sorcery, astronomy, and astrology. So they were very interested in studying the stars. And the Magi, they had a place of tremendous prominence and power in the East throughout history. So the next question that we want to ask is, what was their role? Let's look at their status, their role. They had so much power, all the way up to the Roman Empire. They were key people in the governments of the East, in the Medo-Persian Empire, and in the, the Babylonian region. They had great political power. They rose to places of power in governments of the East to become advisors to royalty in the East. So this is where the name wise men 
comes from because they were consulted by kings. They were advisors to kings. They were high-ranking officials. And in fact, historians say that no Persian, Persian was ever able to become king without mastering the disciplines of the Magi. And the one who would become king must be approved and crowned by the Magi. So that shows you how much power they had. In fact, the law of the Medes and the Persians was referred to as the wisdom of the Magi. So they were very powerful. They were so powerful that nobody could become king apart from their approval. So let's look at their search for the king of kings, for the Messiah. Historically, and looking here at scripture, we can learn that the Magi are likely descended, again, from the Medes. And the Medes were a very ancient group of people that go all the way back to Abraham. The Medes would have lived and resided in Persia, which is a land to the east of Israel. And they're found throughout the Old Testament. The Old Testament speaks often of Magi and wise men. And they were even found in uh, many books uh, that Nebuchadnezzar has mentioned. Nebuchadnezzar is a very prominent king in the Old Testament. And he may be uh, more familiar to us from the book of Daniel. So let's focus there for a moment. When Nebuchadnezzar had taken Judah into captivity, he had Magi who served as his advisors. And he had a dream that none of the Magi could interpret. But Daniel could interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. So when the Magi could not interpret the dream and Daniel could, the king saw him as having wisdom of God and made Daniel the chief of the Magi. Do you see what God is doing there? He made him the chief of the Magi. So the Magi that served under Nebuchadnezzar were very familiar with Jewish prophecy regarding the Messiah, with the Old Testament, because Daniel was their overseer. He would have been teaching them the prophecies, teaching them about God's word, what to look for, for the coming Messiah. So Daniel, a godly young man devoted to God, he has much information about the Old Testament, and God used him to influence the Magi and their knowledge of the Messiah. So right up through history, right until the time that Jesus was born, there were generations of Magi that were studying the Old Testament, that were studying the scriptures, looking for this Messiah. There were some Magi who, believing that the God of Daniel was the one true God, were seeking the one who would be born king of the Jews. So God's providence was guiding the Magi even before they saw the star. But then when they saw the star, even then, God was using their study of the, the stars and the solar system to point them to the one that they were seeking. He used something that he knew would get their attention because they loved studying the stars. So he showed them a star to guide them to the king. And so they began their journey to Jerusalem. Now, how far did they travel and how long did it take them to get there? Let's look at their journey. Their journey was likely 800 to 1,000 miles to get to Jerusalem. And it would have taken them more than a month to get there. 
And our popular idea is that these wise men, they saw a star and they left immediately. But that's not the case. We'll see that they likely had more than three people with them, and they would have needed to take time to prepare for a thousand-mile journey, so they couldn't just pick up everything and leave to go find this king. And they traveled on foot and horseback and with camels, so it would have taken them a while to get there. So I believe the timeline puts them uh, definitely after Jesus' birth. And in Luke 2, it tells us that Mary and Joseph, they took Jesus to the temple to present him to the Lord and make an offering. They made an offering of two turtle doves. Because Levitical law requires that this take place and that it happened 40 days after the birth of a male child. So it's probably at least a month or more since Jesus has been born before these magi are coming to look for him. Now, traditionally, we think of three wise men, but there may not have been three. Scripture doesn't tell us exactly how many they were. There may have been more. The popular view of three comes from the three gifts that they would bring, but the text doesn't actually tell us how many magi there were. But what we can know for sure is that they likely had an entourage. They would have had servants with them. They would have had armed soldiers with them. They're traveling a thousand miles. They needed protection. And with their power and their prominence, they would have had dozens of soldiers at their disposal. They're carrying gold and frankincense and myrrh, gifts for the king of the Jews. They need protection. They have valuable goods with them. So they're not traveling alone. There has to be at least more than three of them. So when we mentioned the gifts, what did they bring? And what was their significance? There was myrrh, which was a highly desirable spice that was used in perfumes. There was frankincense, which is another high-quality spice that is used in offerings. And there was gold, which is, well, gold. And while there are different theories on what each one of these gifts represented, what we can know is that these gifts were meant for royalty and that they were gifts of the highest quality. Now, how much did they bring? Because it, it probably wasn't just a jar of myrrh and a bag of frankincense and a gold bar, like maybe you see in your nativity displays. They arrived with gifts for a king. And when you go back to the Old Testament, you see that this is something that was commonplace, to bring these types of gifts when you go to visit a king. In 1 King, Kings 10, it tells us that the queen of Sheba went to visit King Solomon. And she came to Jerusalem with an entourage, with camels bearing spices, precious stones, and very much gold. The passage in 1 Kings 10 goes on to tell us that she brought 120 talents of gold, which today's value would be around $240 million worth of gold. So these are the type of gifts that would be presented to kings and they were meant to be presented to royalty. And with the Magi being part of the ruling class, we should assume that their gifts were comparable since they were being presented not just any king, but to the king of kings. And this, again, demonstrates God's providence in the story. Because after the Magi leave Bethlehem, an angel tells Joseph to take his family and flee to Egypt. Mary and Joseph, they recently presented Jesus at the temple, and they offered up two turtle doves. 
That was an alternative to the more expensive offering of a lamb and a bird. So they somehow later have the financial means to go to Egypt, which is the fulfillment of prophecy, but then to also stay there for at least five months. Where did they get all this money all of a sudden? From the Magi. Now when these Magi entered Jerusalem, it wasn't an unknown thing to the people that were there. It wasn't like Aladdin just getting the fruit from underneath the, the merchant tent, right? This is Ali of Babwa entering the city. So an Aladdin reference. Anybody get that? <laughs> there were about 40,000 people living in Jerusalem. So they must have had a large train of people, camels, horses. And it's a noticeable entrance because they're asking everyone, where is he who was born king of the Jews? And this word gets back to Herod. And he is troubled. Rome was threatened by the kingdoms of the east. Their leaders were fearful of the east. Rome had conquered most of the known world except for the east. So when Herod heard that magi, men from the east, men who authorize and appoint and crown kings, had arrived looking for one born king of the Jews. He was troubled. So Herod wants to know this answer as well, although he has different motives than the Magi. So I want to take a quick look at the different characters in this story to see how they respond to the arrival of the king. And there are four responses that we'll see here. First is that of Herod. Herod responds in a way that demonstrates insecurity. He has a fear of losing his power and authority. He wants control. Caesar had crowned Herod king of the Jews. That was a title that was given to Herod by Caesar. Herod was supposed to be the king of the Jews. So he hates this Messiah. He hates this announcement that there's somebody else born with that same title that he is supposed to have. This is a threat to Herod's throne. What's interesting is that Herod believed the facts. He believed that this was something that had happened. So he gathered the scribes and the chief priests to verify this prophecy. And then he asked the Magi to let him know where the child was. And just to be safe, he had possibly hundreds of babies slaughtered to preserve his power. But you can't stop God's plan. What we see with Herod is that even though he believed the facts about the Messiah, there was no heart change. Many people recognize Christmas as the day that we celebrate Christ's birth. All over the world today, people are celebrating. Many even believe, but that does not mean that their hearts are near to God. We cannot separate the, the history and the story of Jesus, the man being bored from the fact that Christ is the Son of God. He is worthy of the day. He is worthy of worship. He is the King of Kings. He rules the earth with all authority. Our disposition towards him, our feelings about God based on our past, our present, whatever's going on, it doesn't change who he is. 
It doesn't change how he expects us to respond to his kingship. And so we see that there is only one right response to the truth that Jesus Christ is the king of kings. Now, not only was Herod troubled, but it says all of Jerusalem was troubled. They were worried. What were they worried about? They were worried about Herod's response. Their concern was that the Messiah, who they had been waiting for, would make their life difficult. Herod was a tyrant. Herod had his own children and his wife executed for his own self-preservation. So if Herod is troubled about something, if he's upset, if he's angry about something, that could mean certain death for many. And that's exactly what happens. So to those living in Jerusalem, if Herod is troubled, that could mean a disruption and a threat to their way of life. It's so easy to become preoccupied with a certain lifestyle, to become obsessed with a certain way of life, a way of living, to become fixated on a certain sin or a level of comfort, that to introduce Jesus into that situation, into that lifestyle, into that sin, would mean that everything would have to change. And sometimes we don't like that. If I start reading scripture, then I'll be convicted of some of my favorite sins, so I'm just not going to read scripture. If I speak up for Christ in this situation, it could cost me this relationship. So I'm going to just stay quiet. We're so scared that following God's commands will introduce potential inconveniences and interruptions to our lives that we'd rather just keep things the way they are and not have Jesus be a part of any of it. How many of us maybe even struggled to come to worship on Christmas Day because we have things that were more important than gathering to worship Christ on the day meant to be a celebration of his birth? It shouldn't be that way. Jesus Christ is not an interruption. He was not an interruption to history at this point. He was not an interruption to the way of living for Herod and for Jerusalem. He's not an interruption to Christmas. He's not an interruption to our lives. He is at the center of history, the center of scripture. We were made to glorify him. So everything that we do should revolve around him and should point back to him. Amen. Now next we see the response of the chief priests and the scribes. It says that Herod gathered them in verse 4, and he inquires of them where the Christ was to be born. To inquire of them here, it means that he was repeatedly asking them. So he's probably bringing in uh, different groups of people a little at a time, and asking the same questions. And they all give him the same answer. They don't have different perspectives. They all have the same answer, that the Christ will be born according to Scripture in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler 
who will shepherd my people Israel. And these religious leaders, the scribes and the chief priests, men whose livelihood was knowing God's word and teaching it, they knew the prophecy, yet they did nothing. They knew the truth, yet they suppressed it. Their traditions were way more important than the most important truth. They knew what the scripture said about the coming Messiah. And they lived in Jerusalem, only five miles from where the king was born. Yet they did not seek him. And you contrast that to these Gentile sorcerers who traveled a thousand miles to see him. And then we look at the response of the Magi, which is one of worship and adoration. The Magi, again, they're the only Gentiles in the story. They're not even Jews. They're Gentiles. Yet they are the ones who come to worship he who was born king of the Jews. And we see their response of worship and adoration is the only right response. And so I want to just share a couple observations about their worship uh, for us this morning as we consider how we can have a Christmas that glorifies the king. First, we see that their response, their worship is a response to their belief. The Magi were seeking the king that they believed had been born. They didn't travel a thousand miles as skeptics. They didn't bring gifts in a caravan of people just in case this prophecy was true. They believed. They studied the prophecies. Now they studied other things that are mentioned in scripture that we shouldn't be a part of. But they were interested in the stars, so God gave them a star. He spoke their language and drew them because they were seeking him. And because they sought the truth, God revealed the truth to them. He spoke their language. He gave them a clear sign. And along with their study of the inspired truth taught for hundreds of years since Daniel, they also had this visible sign that what they were seeking was real and was true. And God used that to draw them near. God reveals himself to those who seek him. And these magi, they knew that they needed a savior. Now think about that. They were kingmakers. They appointed kings. But they were looking for the one that was born king of kings. Not one that they would crown. One that was already born king of kings. They have so much power and so much authority. They can make anyone they want king. But they're seeking one that's already born king of the Jews. Because they knew that they needed a savior. They were looking for the one that had been promised. Of whom the increase of his government and peace shall be no end. Whose throne will be established with judgment and justice forever. They knew and believed that this king would shepherd Israel was meant for them too because he was meant for the whole world and they knew that they needed him. Do you believe 
that God is real and that he is good and that he is king and that he came to this earth to give you freedom from sin and to give you eternal life? Then seek him and worship him today in response to that truth. We also see that their worship demonstrates their desire for God. It says that they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy when they saw the star. Their worship demonstrates a desire for God. They saw the star and they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They knew that the king that they had studied about, that they had hoped for, had arrived and they rejoiced The thing that should make us the most joyful at Christmas should not be gifts, should not be cookies or lights. There's nothing inherently wrong with any of those things, especially cookies. (laughs) But the thing that should make us the most joyful and the source of our joy should be the Savior that was promised to rescue God's people has come. The Messiah has come. That is what should give us joy, knowing that he has come and that we no longer need to walk in darkness. He has come to save us. And because of the joy that the Magi had, they brought him valuable gifts, expecting nothing in return. They traveled a great distance just to see him. Because he is the gift. He is the treasure. He is what they were seeking. They didn't come to God to worship him, hoping to get something back from him. They find him and they are simply satisfied just to be in his presence. They needed nothing else. They gave him treasures that many of us could only dream about. But those things didn't matter. They didn't need anything from him and they gave up material possessions because he is more valuable than any of them. He is the treasure. The gifts that they gave demonstrate how much he is worth to them. Now, these gifts themselves mean very little to God. He is the creator. He doesn't need anything. But in giving their gifts, they demonstrate that they find joy and satisfaction in him alone. Do you find joy and satisfaction in Christ's presence alone? Amen. Finally, we see that their worship is focused on who he is, not on what he has done. We see that their worship is focused on not what the Christ child has done, but on who he is. As a baby, an infant, possibly a toddler at this point, he had done nothing. Now you consider, logically, they travel a thousand miles. Here's this woman that has given birth to the Son of God, and here's this baby. But they worship The child. They don't worship Mary. They worship the child. And Mary does not forbid it. She knows that she is just a vessel. She knows that he is the one who will be the fulfillment of God's promises. 
Mary knew, right? Mary, did you know that your baby boy? That's all you're going to get. <laughs> Merry Christmas. You're welcome and sorry. Did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water? He would calm the storm with his hand. The blind will see, the deaf will hear, the dead will live again. At this point in history, he has done none of that. He's just a baby. He has not fully fulfilled his purpose as Savior. But they worshipped him. They worshipped a baby. Not because of what he did, but because of the promise. They worship because of who he is. And that is enough of a reason to worship him. Because when you look at how these men, the kingmakers, the ones who troubled Herod, treated this baby boy falling down and worshiping him, they don't respond to him as though he's just some king. They honor him as the king of kings, and even more than that, they worship him as God. That is enough for us on Christmas and every day to worship him. To give everything, our heart, our body, our soul, to the one true king. And even more than the Magi, because we now worship the Christ, fully God, fully man, who has given sight to the blind, who has raised the dead, who went to the cross to be a redemption for us and was raised again so that we might walk in the newness of life. Amen? We have every reason to worship and bow down to this King of Kings. It's not every year that we get to have Christmas on a Sunday. So it's very special today. And it's not an interruption. It's not an inconvenience. Don't see the Lord as an interruption to this season, as an inconvenience to your life. Because he's not just part of Christmas. He's not just part of some holiday he is the reason that we celebrate, and he is worthy on this day of our worship. So let us worship him, our king, this Christmas and always. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for how you sovereignly by your perfect will, according to your perfect plan, orchestrated the events of history to bring about the birth of your Son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. When we consider, looking throughout Scripture, how broken humanity is, is how fallen we are, how totally and utterly depraved and just unable to do anything that would please you. That you sent your son as a man to walk among us, to live a life that we could not live, and to die in our place, to receive our punishment. And when we consider that, 
And we know that he did make the dead to live again. And more than that, he was raised on the third day, conquering sin and death so that we could walk in the newness of life. So that we no longer have to be slaves to sin and to fear but that we could do what it is that you created us to do, to glorify you. So I pray that we would do that today, every day, that we would fully give ourselves to you, our heart, our body, our soul, our everything, because it all belongs to you. You are at the center of our universe, at the center of our lives. We pray that today you would be at the center of Christmas, because this day is for you. So we give you all the glory. We worship you now. In Christ's name, amen.